The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mysteries of life. This episode is a compliment to Ritual and Practice for the Urban Homestead, a retreat I'm co-leading with my husband, Ruben Anderson, this fall 2018 at Hollyhock Lifelong Learning Center on Cortez Island. For more information about that, go to the website hollyhock.ca. Today, I'm happy to welcome back to the podcast for the sixth time, peak oil expert and polymath John Michael Greer. Today, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of the publishing of his book, The Long Descent, A User's Guide to the End of the Industrial Age. This classic book follows our present industrial society down the well-worn path that's led other civilizations into decline. In the book, John explains how this path involves a much more complex and slower transformation than the sudden catastrophe scenarios imagined by doomsday preppers and Hollywood movies. To give you a sense of how he puts that path, uh, charts that path throughout the book, I'd like to read you the six chapter titles. So chapter one is called The End of the Industrial Age. Chapter two, The Stories We Tell Ourselves. Three, Briefing for the Descent. Four, Facing the Deindustrial Age. Five, Tools for the Transition. And six, The Spiritual Dimension. And there's quite a thorough appendix that's called How Civilizations Fall, A Theory of Catabolic Collapse. I connected with John online. He was at home in Southern New England. Welcome back, John. So tell us again, what identities do you lead with? Um, This time, I think I lead with this. I am the guy who says the things you're not supposed to say. I'm (laughs) the guy who says the things you're not supposed to talk about. Um, You know, I'm the guy who comes bearing bad news and nobody wants to hear it, but it's time to wake up. The party (laughs) is over. (laughs) Well, I'm here. It'll be a party of two. (laughs) And some of the (laughs) listeners I know uh, are big fans and and, uh, frequently comment that your episodes are uh, their favorite. I'm delighted to hear that. Oh, good. And and it'll probably be very uh, mind expanding for some who uh, maybe have cultivated uh, deep inquiry into their spiritual lives, but haven't looked so much at what's happening on a planetary scale. So um, mm-hmm. I'm here to celebrate the long descent and its 10th anniversary. Good. Congratulations <laughs> on, on well, this. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a classic and it's standing the test of time. Now, for folks who haven't read it, in the long descent, you caution against, uh, in in quotes, imminentizing the eschaton. Yeah, imminentizing the eschaton. Um, we ha- in 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 some in, in our popular Western religious traditions, we have this notion that of the end of the world. There's going to be this big kablooey, Everything changes, and either we all die horribly, or the world is transformed, or the Space Brothers land, or Jesus shows up. You know, it's all over. Kapow, Hollywood special effects, you name it. We all have this thing as part of our culture, and people are constantly looking for something to fill that slot the eschaton, the end of things. They want to imminentize it. They want to make it part of their part of their lived reality. And so people keep on getting incredibly frustrated because the universe doesn't provide those. I mean, the, the, there are, there are there disasters, sure. Are there sudden improvements? Are there sudden worsenings? Do things, you know, do things change? Things are always changing. 
but there's never that that orgasmic Hollywood kapots and we're all done. Yeah. So this 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 is like I love what you say that people are frustrated because it's so true. It's it's easy for people to um, you know the zombie movies, the end of the world movies. This is how it ends shows. Um, but there, you, you make the argument instead in The Long Descent for this long stair step of punctuated collapse where there are crisis incidents followed by the partial recovery, but things are never quite as good as they used to be. So it's kind of this crisis calm crisis with ever lowering levels of integration. So given mm -hmm. the, the recent climate science of the past decade, mm -hmm. and given this worldwide heat wave starting in June that's still here in summer of 2018 mm -hmm. in August, given the scale and ferocity of the fire sweeping the globe, mm -hmm. does this still feel like a gradual stair-step pattern to you or co of collapse? Oh, yes. Really? So you wouldn't revise anything? This is what I'm talking about. This is one of those crises, okay? Um, if you happen to be caught in front of the, one of those fires and can't can't get out fast enough, your world has just ended. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, and it's there are there are exactly this is exactly the kind of sharp ecological shift that will be followed. Watch this. Next summer is not going to be as bad as this summer. Now there will be another summer, three or four or five years down the line, that's even worse. Hmm. But just as was it 2005, we had that amazing run of amazing, that, that, that hideous run of devastating hurricanes here in the States. Hmm. And it just bang, 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 bang. Everyone was saying, oh, my God, next year is going to be worse. Next year was, wasn't worse. Hmm. And that's actually the way things tend to happen. You get these sudden bursts of problems and then things like basically the problems shift somewhere else. So in a future edition, though, of The Long Descent, would you talk a little bit more about death tolls or something because on paper the book makes it sound pretty manageable whereas this is like well it it wasn't made to sound to make it sound manageable and in fact we'll be talking a little ways down the road about how social traps make it impossible to manage the de the decline mm -hmm. the thing is we're talking about we're talking about death tolls we're talking about um a situation where over the next one to three hundred years we're going to see the world population decline to a small fraction of what it is today and a lot like of that, um, it, based on historical averages, about 5% of what it is now. Wow. And you, you, yeah. you're now, saying in a couple that, hundred years. In, in one to 300 years. That's the usual, uh, the, the usual course of decline for a complex civilization like this one. Now, that doesn't mean that, again, watch the Hollywood thing. Everyone thinks, oh, my, good Lord, 95% of the people will die. You, you imagine everyone suddenly clutching their throat and toppling to the ground. In <laughs> fact, simple demographics will do most of that. You, you probably know people, I certainly do, who have young, fa young families, young couples who have decided they are not going to have children because they can't afford it, because mm -hmm. the world is in too much turmoil, because they're aware of the ecological burden that the 7 billion people are placing on this planet. Birth rates are dropping sharply all around the world, even in those places that were just overwhelmingly um, high, high population growth. Just a few decades ago, birth rates are dropping sharply. Mm. In much of the world, birth rates have already gone below repa replacement level. That's actually what's going to do much of the demographic contraction, just fewer hmm. babies being born. Hmm. Okay. And so few, fewer babies being more born, um, there will be more illnesses. There will be more um, health, you know, health conditions that people have now that we can treat now. As technology becomes more and more pricey, becomes more and more unstable, a lot of those conditions will be less treatable, and and so it goes. 
um, basically, if, if you know, let's imagine you know 100 people, okay? Mm-hmm. And imagine, and you, you think of the number, because every, every so often somebody in your circle some uh, dies, okay? You know, just in the normal way of things, people die. That's, you know, one of those things. Now, just imagine that every year from now on in, every single year, one more person dies than you're used to, than, than you're used to, to having die. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, somebody dies of cancer or somebody dies in an accident or so, or what have you, just one more death per year. That's the kind of decline that actually will take a population from 7 billion to 5% of that in a couple of centuries. Hmm. So that's what we're looking at. That's not to say it's easy. Some of those people who die, you're going to miss. Mm-hmm. That happens anyway, of course, but there will be more of them. And so this is the reality that we're already facing now, not you know the great, the great apocalyptic collapse, but every year something loses, something falls off, something has to be done without. Every year the air quality has some problems. You know, this year we've got, you've got the air quality problems and the horrible heat waves and things like that. Next year maybe the sea, the sea level takes a jump upwards and anybody who lives too close to the coast is suddenly getting, you know, um, water in their living room um, when they've got an onshore wind and an unusually high tide. Mm-hmm. And the year after that, it's something different. Mm-hmm. That's the reality of the long descent, you see. Just this gradual process of of decay that we're we're seeing it. We see this to a huge extent here in the United States because our infrastructure is just going to bits. There's a story by a biologist who was studying the size of marlin caught in Florida over the last, uh, well, since photo- photographic evidence. And this showed up in my friend James's book, um, uh, the once and future world. And it's about the shifting baselines of people's perception that they're not noticing the ecological co- collapse. And this woman, this biologist took, uh, found a family that had been going to Florida, marlin fishing every year, multiple generations. So, you know, for the past 50 years and each year, mm-hmm. you know, it starts off with the fish in the 1930s and they're as tall as a man. And mm-hmm. over the years, you see the fish get smaller and smaller and smaller until the fish they're catching now are, you know, the size of a three-year-old. But guess what? The people are all smiling just as big today as they mm-hmm. did in the 20s. They're mm-hmm. all just mm-hmm. as happy that they caught this fish. And I feel like that's They caught this big fish. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that, it seems to be what you're describing with the, the stair step. Yeah. And this is this is one of the ways that it's the thing to remember is that our species has been through cycles like this over and over and over again. Since civilization emerged, since we got to the um, societies complex enough to have um, stored food and cities and and basic literacy and things like that, um, tribal societies are pretty stable. Mostly, there are exceptions. Once you get a civilization, you've got the boom and bust cycle. Hmm. That's it, it seems to be hardwired into the structure of civilizations. They grow, they expand, they overshoot their ecological footprint, down they go, down the long descent, one to three hundred years until you know a dark age comes and then you know, somebody picks up the pieces. So we're used to this as a species. We're used to this. We've got all these various things. I mean, the, peop- the, the human beings who could not handle collapse in the course of collapse obviously got filtered out of the gene pool. 
So we are all descended, most you know, um, except those few of us who come from from people from the various peoples who weren't involved in civilizations before, and there are not that many of those. Um, most of us are descended from many, many, many generations of people who've been through exactly the same experience in the past, and so we're good at it. Mm. We've evolved to be good at it, and so exactly that kind of oh well, the marlin's smaller, but look, it's such a neat marlin. In the same way, people are adjusting as as the infrastructure begins to decay, as um, some of the goods and services we're used to aren't quite so available anymore, and they'll keep on adjusting all the way down the curve. Hmm. So that is sort of an oddly optimistic way of thinking about it, which I hadn't oh, thought of yeah. before, but thank you. Yeah, but if I may add just one other thing. People tend to... Um, they don't tend to give human beings credit for what they are. We are a generalist species. We are extremely adaptable. We're right up there with rats and cockroaches. You know, we're, we're very hard to kill. <laughs> and we survive well. I mean, before we even in, invented machines more, more effective than a stone hand axe, we'd spread through every continent except for, uh, except for Antarctica. Okay? Mm -hmm. we, we're an amazingly su successful species. We're really good at surviving. So... I'm quite confident that human beings are going to, you know, our species will pull through this. Um, our civilization won't, mm -hmm. <laughs> but that's another matter. Yeah. So in, in your chapter, Briefing for the Descent, you outline the four facets of catabolic collapse. You call them the four horsemen. Uh, so those are one, declining energy availability, uh, two, economic contraction, three, collapsing public health, four, political turmoil. Now, not knowing very much really about sociopolitics, uh, my question is, do they always happen in that order? Because from this oh, side of the no, fence no. here in Canada, looking at America, yeah. it looks like it's going in reverse. It looks like you have political turmoil and then I can see other things coming down the pike. Actually, no, all of them usually happen. They, they happen in whatever order they happen. Mm. I didn't, it's not you go one to two to three to four. Okay. It's all of these, basically it's like a horse race, okay? Mm. The gates come open and all four of the horsemen come galloping out, and it's anyone's guess which one's going to be in front. Right now, political turmoil is kind of leading the pack, but our public health is really bad down here. I don't know if you know, for example, that our rates of infant mortality are right on a par with those of Indonesia. Hmm. I did not yeah, know that. You do, most people do not know that. Amer um, the American public health types don't like talking about it, but it's very true. We have really bad public health down here. Um, economic contraction, we've had a lot of that. It's been papered over with a lot of, um, you know, in basically the manufacture of IOUs. Mm. Um, <laughs> that is a vast amount of paper debt. But we've had a lot of economic con contraction down here. And behind it all is the decline in the availability of cheap um, concentrated fossil fuel reserves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So all of those horses are running down the curve right as we speak. And you know which one? Which one is it? He is at the head of the pack at any given time? Uh, well, you know, uh, certainly uh, President Trump is is doing a very good job of jockeying that number four. Uh, but mm -hmm. we'll see about the others. Mm -hmm. Well, and you spend a good deal at the beginning of the long descent explaining Hubbard's curve and why you know techno utopian solutions like they're just not going to work. Um, so I kind of want to see what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's yeah. like that's let's just get to what we have to do right now. So in the exactly. chapter uh, facing the deindustrial age, you then explain why the three most common responses to collapse basically are inadequate. I mean, and and I love 
how you explain it, it's like, oh, so survivalism, that sucks. Like this other thing sucks. And, but here's a couple of quotes that I, I think um, are, just encapsulate the problem so well. Uh, you say, when the necessary changes could have been made easily, the danger was still so far away that it was all too easily ignored. Now that the danger is becoming obvious, the costs of change amount to requiring the population of the industrial world to surrender everything they think of as a normal lifestyle. And then you go on to talk about one of the social traps of all political systems is that, uh, quote, they usually settle on choices with short-term benefits and long-term costs rather than choices with short-term costs and long-term benefits even if the long-term issues are of far greater importance. Uh, it, that, I mean, that just, I was like, oh God, when you put it so simply, it seems like this is, this is a, a, a terrible problem because we keep repeating this. Do you think there's any scale of government that can resist that social trap? Um, one of the problems that we face here is that any government that's answerable to the people can't, can't evade the social trap. I mean, if you can imagine, if any party um, in in British Columbia, let's say, if any political party were to come out saying, no, "We're going to do without fossil fuels," we're going to we're going to ramp down to a third world lifestyle for everybody. Um, how many people do you think they would? Uh, how many other candidates do you think would get elected? Yeah, actually, and even just as you say that, that like if they have to answer to the people, it's never going to happen. They won't be exactly. able to avoid the trap. That just gonna... I, that feels so suffocating to just be like, oh uh, no. Yeah. No, the the, th the thing is, the thing is, people get democracy. The, the democratic systems of government. I think it was Winston Churchill who said they are the worst system of government except for all the others. <laughs> okay, um, democracy, democratic systems of government have huge problems. It's just that all the other ones have worse problems. Mm. Um, and so that you see, that's just that's just it. You could go for, I mean, if if um, you lived in the you know in the Democratic People's Republic of British Columbia with some equivalent of um, uh, Kim Jong Un in charge, mm -hmm. okay, and he happened to decide that um, okay, we're going to make these changes, you'd make those changes, mm -hmm. you know, or spend or. or you know, go off or you know, get marched off into a prison camp somewhere, or mm -hmm. even or simply shot. But you know, there's a lot of other problems with that kind of government. Mm -hmm. So let's not mm -hmm. go there. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, f furthermore, the likelihood that any such government will, would be accepted in a place like British Columbia is very, very low. Mm -hmm. So really, this the this this is why a political solution isn't an option. Right. Because you've got that social trap in place where nobody's going to vote to give up. A modern lifestyle. Well, mm -hmm. a few people would, but not enough. Just a tiny minority of people. Not. I mean, the the thing I look at is that even the activists, even the people who are out there, who are you know protesting like pipelines. How many of them drive to those protests? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Can you maybe you should tell the story of the monkey with this with this paw in a trap. The monkey trap. Yeah, this is. Um, I forget where it is. Somewhere in somewhere in Southeast Asia, they have this extremely ingenious way of trapping a monkey. They get um, like a, a coconut shell or something that has a hole in it, and it's it's anchored. It's it's tied by a rope to a um, to a stake in the ground, and in the into the um, coconut, the hollowed out coconut shell, they put a nut that's large enough that it can slip in through the hole. So the monkey comes around. It sees the. It sniffs it. It reaches in to grab the nut, and it finds that if it has 
its hand around the nut. It can't get, the, get its hand out. If it lets go of the nut, it could, but it doesn't want to let go of the nut. And so there it is, yanking desperately, trying because he doesn't want to get, he doesn't want to give up that, um, that nut. And so he sits there desperately yanking on the thing while the guy comes up and whacks him over the head. Yeah. And that's that's the monkey, that's the monkey trap. And, and so we're all monkeys trapped. We won't let go of the nut. We have got our hands clenched around that fossil fuel nut, and we are clinging to it as it drags us down. And so, yeah, the, you know, all these people who are who are climbing into their SUVs to drive, um, you know, to a protest to protest a pipeline that is shipping the fuel for those SUVs. Um, by climbing into the SUV, you're voting for that pipeline. Mm. By leading a lifestyle that depends on the fossil fuels that that pipeline provides, you're voting for that pipeline. And if you march around with a sign in your hands, you know, that's aerobic exercise and nothing else. As long as you, you live, your, your lifestyle casts a bigger vote than anything else. And one of the reasons that the environmental movement has run, has basically run aground at this point, nobody listens to them, um, is precisely that an enormous number of people have come to think of environmental activists as hypocrites. Because they live a lifestyle that contradicts what they claim to be true. I mean, if you say global warming is going to destroy us all, and I'm going to go climb in an airplane, belching smoke into the atmosphere to go down to Mazatlan or someplace for for my holidays, well, why should I do that? Well, well or even to some big conference the... for for exactly. climate change conference and flying all over the world. What I love about the long descent, though, is that you really do say, like, look, this is a long, slow deindustrialization process. So, like, you know, ye who has not yet sinned, cast the first stone. Like, all we can do uh, is what we can do, but what we can do is a lot more than what we're doing. So, in terms of this, um, like, shifting to deindustrialization, one of the the, the challenges is, of course, we do all look to the government first, like if we would just you know, do this or that, that doesn't work. But you do talk about, um, you encourage people to connect with community organizations. Now, one of the things, you know, like there's, so maybe there's NGOs or social enterprises or other community networking organizations that might like position themselves to perhaps rest some power or have some influence or um, at least have enough of a community to provide some guidance and, and um, you know, teaching or support or whatever. But as a person who has been involved in some of these organizations and even in my own Quaker community, um, you know, there's a lot of politicking that happens even at that scale, you know, like, and oh, yeah. I'm curious what your experience has been and what your thoughts have been. Like, is there a kind of scale at which everything just does become as ineffectual as, as politics because we're, we're once again victims of <laughs> okay. our own trap? Well, okay, first of all, politi you, you're going to, anytime two human beings get within shouting range of each other, politics is going to happen. That's simply one of those things. The important thing is to find ways to make the politics um, as pain as painless as possible. Okay, to manage the political interaction in a way that generally produces good results, and there are there are various ways to do that. The difficulty is that in a crisis situation of the kind that we're the, you know these sort of um, you know crisis after crisis, the sort of thing that we're facing now, it's very difficult to manage anything like that. <clears throat> But the crucial thing, and I'm cycling back just briefly to the thing we were just talking about, if you're not willing to change your own life, you're not going to be able to get anyone else to change. Mm -hmm. 
and this is this is the rock on which so many so much environmental activism is, it breaks every time you've got to lead by example you've got to encourage mimesis you've got to show people that yeah it's possible to have a perfectly um good happy lifestyle on a small fraction of the of the fossil fuels that we're used to using and so that's where the when you know that's where real change is going to happen and so once you have that yeah you can start networking different you know people who let's say uh, don't don't have cars mm-hmm. could you know every so often it's necessary to have a vehicle for something you know you need a truck to haul some furniture or something like that okay so you can end up with a group of people who have um a truck in common mm-hmm. You know, with a community group, well, you know, a, a grange or a lodge or a church or, or, or a, a, you know, what have you, that has a truck that can be used, you know, when, the, when there's a need for a truck. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of things. So there's like tool libraries and things like that. There's lots of things you can do once you've made the step to make changes in your own life. The possibilities really widen out to start from that grassroots level to organize in ways that can make life a lot easier for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But you've got to you've got to start with your own life, or yeah. nothing actually gets changed. Well, and you can start with one person. Actually, Ruben and I don't have a car, and we have a co-op membership. But sometimes we want to go somewhere where we don't want to pay the mileage because it's like a long drive, let's say. And so it took us a while. It took me a while. Ruben is really great. At, he'll ask anyone for a favor, whereas I find that just like breaking the social contract somehow. Like I have to know <laughs> them well enough. I have to whatever. But now. Um, you know, we've done this with two friends now where we just figure out an arrangement. Like we've just asked them like, Hey, could we borrow your car since you work during the day? We want to drive, you know, a couple hours to go to this river and take our kids swimming, that kind of thing. And, and we just found the person for whom that wasn't weird and she was okay with it. And now we do it a lot. We have another friend. She often needs to go traveling to see her family in a different province. And she flies super early in the morning. And so I became the person who's like, yes, I will drive you to the airport at 5 a.m. And then I yeah. use her car for a couple of weeks. But it started with like one person. I had to mm-hmm. kind of break through the habit mm-hmm. of the social convention mm-hmm. of that's just not what you do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's a really that's a really good example of how these things can, how these things can done can be done, and as people as people interact to meet each other's needs in that kind of ex, you know uh, your friend needs a ride to the airport okay mm-hmm. you can provide that they have something they can do with you this is this is what anthropologists call the gift economy mm-hmm. okay where instead of taking it to a market instead of doing a tit for tat exchange you do something nice for somebody. There's just some expectation they're going to do something nice for you. And, you know, it can all work out. It doesn't have to, you know, it doesn't have to be measured out in dollars and cents. It doesn't have to be, you know, negotiate, negotiated out of the tit for tat. Person A needs something. Person B can provide it. Person B needs something. Person C might be the one who provides it. Mm-hmm. And it just, this is the way most, most tribal societies actually run their economies. Mm-hmm. They don't do the market economy shtick. Mm-hmm. It's a gift. You know, it's a gift economy. It's a customary economy. You know, there are things that you just do and so on and so forth. So as you're doing that, you're actually beginning making an important adaptation toward the long descent, because that's the kind of economy we're going to have at the bottom of the descent. So in the section where you discuss the problems of survivalism, you know, that kind of head for the hills, you know, Mm -hmm. doomsday prepper type thing, um, you mentioned that 
those whose value consists of things they can do and teach are generally left unharmed when rural anarchy runs amok. Like you talk about how it's actually, it's, people think, oh, I'm going to move to the country, but actually that's, there's problems with that. Um, but people who are useful and people who can teach, um, you know, tend to be uh, highly valued. And then later in the book, you you discuss more specifically the vocations that are more collapse friendly. And I'm sure our listeners, Ruben and I have talked about this for like a decade now, always kind of pondering, um, like what would be your specific suggestions about choosing a viable profession in times of persistent precarity? And maybe there's some that um, are, are maybe not as highly valued now, but could be later? Like, what should we be encouraging our children to look at? Yeah. Well, this the thing is, partly we don't know. Partly we need – it's important to be nimble. It's important not to assume that we know how things are going to be shaping up. We know how things are going to work out. We do know that certain skills tend to be extremely highly valued in just about any context. For example, the, the example I always use is learn how to brew good beer. <laughs> okay. If Attila the Hun comes to your door and you can hand him a cold one and say, here, have it, enjoy, you've got a friend. <laughs> and if your friend is the local warlord, you know, and you, you can provide him with good beer, um, you're probably going to do fairly well. In the same sense, somebody who can do um, you know, ba basic hands-on health care. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I highly recommend uh, people consider is getting some background either as a nurse or as an EMT. So you know how to deal. Not, not so much a physician these days. MDs do very little with patients. They're mostly they, they mostly have to fill out paperwork. But um, the people who actually provide hands-on patient care, some I don't know um, what your local legislation is about alternative health care, but any of those that are legal in your jurisdiction, that's another really good one. Because if you can, if you can heal people. If you can treat their illnesses, if you can you know, um, help their wounds heal and this kind of stuff, your chances of being treated as a very important person go way up. Mm -hmm. back, in, back in the days when, the pir when pirates were all over the Caribbean, okay, and the, the um, societies that they set up on the islands that they controlled were probably the most lawless societies our, our species has ever had. Okay. It was just – it was a mess of pirates and people who catered to pirates and um, you know, people of both genders who catered to pirates in different ways, of course. Um, and there, there was no law. Um, if you got into a – you know, two guys get into a fight and, they, and they, one of them would kill the other. And it was just you, – you, somebody would drag the body away. No big deal. There were people in those things who led charmed lives. If you were a doctor, if you were a shipwright and could repair ships – if you were a gunner, if there, were, there were a couple of dozen things like that. Nobody would touch you at all because they knew their life might depend on your being able to, to do your skill down the road. They wanted to be in your good books. And so, you know, um, <clears throat> Captain Jack the Pirate, um, who, would, as, who would happily cut somebody's throat as much as look at him, is going to be friendly and, you know, and, and, um, because he wants your beer. Mm hmm. So there's these yeah. other things, though, that would be useful, like, so let's say um, counseling, trauma, you know, responder, those kinds of things are, are like nice to have, so it seems like, like, probably people uh -huh. can't pay for that. But maybe you get like, uh, maybe somebody would give you a chicken every once in a while. If you exactly. Out, that kind of thing. <laughs> and yeah, and that's, that's where that gift economy comes in. You also end up with 10 pe people tend to have lots of different skills. And that's really mm -hmm. important. 
in modern industrial society, we tend to think of having just one skill set. And we can afford that in modern industrial society. As deindustrialization picks up, not so much. Right. So being handy, being able Mm -hmm. to have your basic skills like growing some food, good first aid, facilitation skills maybe. What Mm -hmm. do you think of large animal vet? That's been one we've been trying to get our kids to get into. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, if you, especially, especially if you can, if you can take care of cattle and horses and so on without necessarily having all the latest stuff from the pharmaceutical industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You, yeah, no, literally your, your, your local warlord, you know, Attila the Hun who came, who came next door and got the beer, um, his horse may need some help. Mm-hmm. If you can treat him, if you can keep his horse strong and healthy, um, Attila is your friend. So what do you think about all those like Mad Max, like, oh, I'm like, you talk about the salvage uh, Mm -hmm. economy. economy. Yeah, salvage economy. But like, my question was, how do we, how do we know what's going to, you always see them like salvaging and making these, I think of Mad Max, they make these different cars and they do these different things. But it's like, no, really, when are we going to be in a skyscraper salvage kind of state and what are we going to well, do with all the stuff no no it's, it, we're already there in some places look at what's happening in detroit now where people are going into ruined houses and stripping out all the cop all the copper mm-hmm. we're already in the opening stages of the salvage economy it's just that there's gonna be more and more and more of it when you go to a used junk shop and buy something buy some piece of technology or you know some something that you want there um you're engaged in the salvage economy when you donate something to a to a charity store you've mm. just taken part in the salvage economy it's already there in a basic sense the thing is it's going to ramp up as the production of new goods begins to decline the use the reuse of old goods is continuing to ramp up mm. and as the quality of new goods continues to decline that's of course a very important pattern as well um so yeah we're already beginning you know it's as with so much of the situation we, it's so easy to think of what well, when is it going to happen is happening. Right. It starts little, little bit at a time, one stair step after another. And so while, you know, while you're, you know, while everyone's sitting around waiting for, you know, Mad Max to show up, um, you know, his, his, his kid's sister, um, mildly disturbed Maxine, let's say, okay, it's actually all over the place already. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Okay. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. So, so the other uh, response to, to catabolic collapse you, you talk about is like lifeboat communities. People are going yeah, yeah. to make themselves, you know, an earth ship or whatever they're called. But you mm-hmm. know that we are in, we're transitioning to an agrarian society. So this idea of some, well, and you, you do talk about like examples of guess what? It never works. Um, history shows us, but can you just define agrarian society and paint a picture of what an agrarian, agrarian society of the future, maybe like 100, 150 years from now, what does that look like? When I think of agrarian society, I think of like, it's really old timey in my head. It's hard to imagine it with salvage, you know, with skyscrapers with all the copper pulled out and all the glass down in the background. Like, what, yeah, what's it going to look like? I want, I want you to imagine um, a, 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 Victoria, a Victoria suburb of the future, okay? The houses were like 100 years from now, one to 300 years from now. Um, the, the old houses have been, have been torn down, most of them. 
um, the lumps of concrete broken out of the broken out of the, of the you know out of the ground and stacked to use as building materials. Um, the houses are a mixture of salvaged stuff, from, you know, some of it from the skyscrapers, some of it from elsewhere, um, but you know, and and recently produced things. They're small. We are not talking 18-room houses here. We're talking two-room shacks. Hmm. Okay, we are talking. Um, People who are um, maybe 95% of the population are engaged in um, producing food, mm -hmm. whether they're growing crops, whether, let's see, one to 300 years, the fish, the fish supply is going to start restocking itself. Um, so there may be some fishing going on. There will be livestock, certainly. Another good reason for you to work on that lar on large animal <laughs> veterinary services because, you know, there's, there's going to be cattle and goats. They're going to need your help. Mm -hmm. And, but 95% of people, are working in indirectly to produce food because that's what it takes when you don't have fossil fuels. Mm. Um, is there any in in this in this little village of a, of a dozen small houses in what used to be a prosperous suburb? Does anyone know how to read? Probably not. <laughs> um, does you know? Do we have? Does anyone know what electricity is? Well, we heard a legend about that a long time ago. Um, and, you know, that's, it is, we're talking about the equivalent of a third world peasant lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Okay. This does not necessarily sound too appealing, but, you know, I'm sorry, that's the, that's, that's kind of what we've built for ourselves at this point. Right. If, we want a plan for the future we're going to get, not the one we wish we'd have. So we're talking about there's no more fossil fuel. We're getting the future that our choices have made inevitable. Mm. We could have chosen other. We could have chosen otherwise. There are still things that could be done to improve that situation, and we can get to some of those in a bit. But generally speaking, we're talking about um, if you can imagine the southern end of the southern end of Vancouver Island dotted with little villages, um, total population again maybe about five percent of what it was, what it is today. Mm -hmm. um, the village is almost entirely devoted to um, subsistence agriculture and um uh, you know uh, livestock raising a little bit of fishing and things like that if the fish stocks have started to recover yeah. um and that's just the way things are there may be there might there, you know there may be a town of a few thousand people located someplace near where victoria is you got a good harbor mm -hmm. um it's a it's a although i although what will happen with that with uh, the sea with sea level have rising sharply is an interesting question but there will be doubtless there will be a harbor town and there will be a few thousand people there and there may be people there probably will be people there who read and write and there will be some you know some specialized crafts people and so on and the whole place to judge by poetry from the last set of dark ages the the major the, the major thing that everyone will think because you know there will be the ruins off that way and people will go walking through those going wow those must have been built by giants <laughs> you know who were who were these strange beings who built these things you know there there are these legends about uh, and, and legend is most of what people have you know stories you tell at night after the workday is over and so yeah it's it's a it's it's very difficult for a lot of people to imagine nowadays because we have bought into the mythology of progress Mm -hmm. We think that, you know, we, we, it's as though we've convinced ourselves that spring becomes summer and summer becomes uber summer and uber summer becomes uber uber summer and it just gets mm -hmm. warmer and sunnier and more lovely forever. Uh, unfortunately, what we're learning is that what comes after summer is fall. Mm -hmm. 
I think what is actually even the hardest part about that scenario for me is that is accepting that we could forget. We could forget about, you know, the heyday. We could, that books will disintegrate and with no internet that we will just forget. And so the dark ages is a very difficult, um, you know, I, I actually don't think a lot of people know when we say the dark ages, I, I don't think they know what that means. It doesn't mean that there had been no civilization yet. There had been no, you know, great achievements. Mm -hmm. It means that we had them and then we forgot, right? Do you want to sort of paint that picture for people that this has happened before too? <laughs> Oh yes. Say, well, when you speak of the dark, the, the last round of dark ages, we're talking about what happened after the fall of the Roman Empire. Okay, I want you to imagine Imperial Rome. This is a city with um, twenty-story tall apartment buildings. Okay, it's a city with running water and flush toilets for the rich, but they existed. It's a city where taxi cabs had meters on them. Um, you put in the coin and this kind of stuff. Seriously, the Romans had that technology. Um, you had this, this immense body of literature and philosophy and science and art and music, and it was all unsustainable because they were overstraining. You know, it, it was resting on, and of course in those days, it wasn't fossil fuels, it was agriculture. And it was resting on an agricultural basis that couldn't be sustained. They were overexploiting their, their soils. And there were a whole range of social changes that built up and eventually the whole thing came crashing down over a period of about 300 years. And so you ended up in say 800 AD, 400 years after the fall of Rome. Um, no, actually 325. Uh, and here are the, here's the here's the Colosseum, and here are these you know the, what's left of these big old Roman temples and buildings and things like that, and there are goats grazing on the grass around them, and the entire city has a population of a few thousand people, and a few of them are literate, and there are monks in this monastery and that monastery and that monastery who are copying by hand old manuscripts. And that's the only reason any of Ro any Roman literature got to us, because those monks worked, you know, from sunup to sundown, copying out manuscripts by hand on a parchment. But everything else, you know, you've got a living to make. You you know, you have to get you have to get up early and, and herd those goats or plow the fields or do whatever else you do to to keep your family fed. Mm -hmm. And besides you know, you know that the people who built all these things were wicked. Oh. <laughs> and they were wicked and they were destroyed by God because they were wicked. Now, I want you to imagine 500 years from now or 400 years or 325 years from now, people looking back on our civilization and saying, okay, these people had all these amazing things and they used up the world's fossil fuel supplies wrecked the climate, wrecked the biosphere, flooded the world with rising sea levels, caused all of these catastrophes for their own children and grandchildren. <laughs> Do you think they're going to think of us as angels? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, we are, we are going to be the orcs and Nazgul of their legends. Mm -hmm. Do you worry that because we don't have a religious monastic tradition that the good stuff isn't going to be carried forward? Mm -hmm. The, the Romans didn't have a monastic tradition either. It, it's monastic traditions spring up in the opening periods of Dark Ages. Oh, we'll okay. So we'll have more zealots. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, I mean, the, no, the thing is, it's real simple. Mo monastic monasteries work because they, because they live at a level of absolute poverty. 
Mm-hmm. So they're economically they're very economical. You become a monk in the whether it's whether it's a Christian monk or a Buddhist monk or what have you, you're giving up all property. You own nothing. You are embracing a life of poverty, chastity, and obedience. That's like easier to do if nobody has anything, if nobody else Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, that's not that big a deal with the alternative herding goats from sunup to sundown, right? Okay. Right. So that's why monasteries really pick off because people go, well, let's see. I don't own anything anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and, mm-hmm. You know, and so, and the, and so you, you go become a monk and you work at, you know, you're, you, you're working, you're still going to be putting in long hours, but there's a lot of things you don't have to worry about. And the monastery will take care of you, and you will take care of your fellow monks. And so it becomes very popular in the opening stages of the Dark Ages. You start getting these monasteries popping up. And mon- being in monasteries, you know, you got to give the monks something to do. And so copy that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, yeah. one, one, key, one advantage we have this time around that they didn't have in medieval Europe, that they did have um, during the last round of Dark Ages in China and Japan, okay? Printing. Mm. In China and Japan, woodblock printing had be, had become a an ordinary way of producing documents. They literally carve a piece of wood with the, the characters on it, and then you run in corporate, lay on a piece of rice paper, pull it off. You have a copy. Mm. Do it again a hundred times. You have a hundred copies. Mm-hmm. Um, now, m- movable type, which is of course the kind of printing that that was invented by Gutenberg and launched the print revolution back in the 14th century. That's even easier to work with. But even if all you have is woodblock printing. You can save much more because you know if you produce your your monastic your guy in the monastery or girl woman in the monastery work both ways instead of just copying every individual piece copy out by hand you carve a wood you carve a woodblock or you set up the type. Okay, now we have a hundred copies of this of this book from the old from the old days. Mm-hmm. Makes the survival of documents much easier now. And since print since hand printing. Um, on hand presses has actually has actually become kind of a thing again in North America. Mm-hmm. Um, I have every reason to hope that that's so that so that the monastery, you know, the, the little monastery up away from that little village that we talked about earlier. Okay, mm-hmm. and what religion it is, I have no idea yet. But that monastery might have their own little printing press, mm-hmm. and so every you know, and so there's there's you know there's Brother Jerome in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and his his particular craft is printing, and it's happened as an apprentice to younger monks who are really getting into this. But his particular craft, he's he's producing, you know, batches of fifty or a hundred copies of this old book. So staying with this, uh, the village and the community, and we've got the sort of the the monastic folks all you know cloistered over there. It, it seems like then. Um, for the next few generations, for sure, but even more a little later, choosing where to live is really important. And I know you personally, you've moved a few times in the last 10 years. And so I'm curious, if, like, could you share a little bit about the different locations you've lived and maybe some of the pros and cons you discovered? Like, what made you decide to choose those places? What are some of the factors when you're like, okay, close to the city, but not in the city, like a little bit of land, but not too far like it's it's you know it's a little bit of a a fine i know it's very personal but i'm just curious what's your process been in the last decade okay the thing is my moving was not done for the for the sake of trying to find a you know a doomstead trying to find a place to live out the long descent because i will not live out the long descent okay 
I'm, you know, it's one of 300 years. I'm 56. I'm not going to live to the age of 356. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so you're not that worried right now. About... <laughs> I'm, no, no. So basically I, I've already, I have had, I have so far seen some of the opening rounds of the long descent and I'll see more of them. But the moves that I, that I made, I mean, my wife and I um, left Seattle finally in, um, in 2004 because it was simply unaffordable. It was mm. getting it was getting unaffordable, and there were um, it's it's become a very unhealthy place. Um, they have huge problems with black mold there, uh, huge mm. amounts of really cheap construction, lots of mold getting into buildings, and so on. And my wife has bad allergies, and so we had, we needed to relocate. Um, we originally went to a small place in southern Oregon, a town by the name of Ashland, which I have visited. Very interesting place, I must say. <laughs> it, it is it is a very interesting place. It was it was it was worth it was worth trying. It was it was frankly too far away from anything for me to make it work um, with regard to my writing career. Mm. And since you know, while the long descent has not yet finished, which it won't for one to three hundred years, um, I still have a living to make. <laughs> and so. We left. We went from there to a small town in um, far western Maryland, up in the Appalachians, a very pleasant place called Cumberland, and ended up leaving there as transportation links were starting to break down. There were a range of other things, mm-hmm. and we ended up settling in southern, in southern New England, um, partly because it's very convenient for me to be to be able to get access to a lot of um, you know speaking gigs and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, partly because it was nice to get to a maritime climate again. I'm not, I'm not really not really cut out for the for the continental climate, <laughs> and um, also this is an area where there's a lot of organic food. There's a lot of small farms. Um, there's a lot of the kind of thing that I want to encourage, and I can encourage it with my you know things like where I shop. Um, <laughs> I mean we we have a we have a lovely farmers market three blocks away from our apartment right now. <laughs> and so. So there's just there's a there you know and the things I could we we could have moved to to two dozen other places at least there are lots of there's a lot of flexibility now the younger you are and the you know the the more of the long descent you're going to see the more careful you probably have to be but even so there is no one size fits all answer mm-hmm. for some people moving to a little town moving you know out in the middle of nowhere is probably the best possible thing they could do mm-hmm. um, for others you know there there some of us are city kids. And you don't necessarily want to be in a really big city, but um, a small to mid-sized city can be a very safe place to be. Um, in particular, when when law and order starts breaking down in the countryside, which it generally does as civilizations contract, the cities tend to remain much more stable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess and they so have their own kind of balancing ecosystem. Whereas the country, exactly. like, gosh, nobody's nobody's there to witness. Unless I maybe exactly. you're in a like really tight knit little village. But it, but you did mention food hubs and transportation hubs. Um, mm-hmm. You didn't mention so much. Well, you did. You did say climate. So. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, do you just kind of go with the philosophy that there's like uh, environmentally speaking from a climate perspective, whether it's fires, hurricanes, tsunamis, like there's no really great safe place anymore. There is no safe place. Mm-hmm. This, you know, the whole, the, the biosphere of the whole planet has been disrupted. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, and, and I don't recommend trying to move to Mars. I'm perfectly willing to send Elon <laughs> Musk there, but um, <laughs> that's, you know, that's about it. I don't recommend it for anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um so no, you're you're on the planet Earth. You're I would I would encourage people not to settle on really low lying ground, mm. right near the ocean, mm-hmm. because you're probably going to have seawater in your living room within a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But other than, you know, and there's a few other obvious things like that. If you don't handle hot temperatures well, don't move to the south. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Enough of and, this sort of snowbird lifestyle thing, because that's not going to be very pleasant for you know, no, no, and no, you I'm going to go to Florida. It's like, guess what? You're gonna, yes. yeah, you're you're going to expire <laughs> very quickly. Uh, yeah. Well, mm-hmm. and the thing is, so is Florida. It will not take that much more melting of the Greenland and West Central Antarctic ice caps until large portions of Florida are literally underwater. Mm-hmm. Florida yeah, is so incredibly low lying. If you're, if you're older and you're not going to be as mobile later, or if you have mm-hmm. children, th- those are probably, you know, more, more careful decisions, but it sounds like exactly. you're kind of like, well, I'm not going to like, you know, I'm not going to live to the end. So I don't have to plan for, for that scenario yet. It's exactly. Like, no, I need to change my life. Yeah. I need to, I need to locate some place that will that will likely have the resources that my wife and I are going to need for the rest of our lives, mm-hmm. and then find a place. I mean, our our apartment uh, is on the ground on which is built about eighty feet above sea level, so we're okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and a big part of the future, you say, is is learning the art of doing without. Uh, yeah. And and I'm curious. So then, which absurd extravagance of current modern day life? irks you the most personally i want to know john michael Greer, former art what's your pet <laughs> how could one choose there are so many um let's see i mean would would one would one talk about the people who climb into their suvs to drive three blocks to the health club to get the exercise that they could get by walking three blocks to the health club <laughs> do we want to talk about I love the earth and that's why I'm going to go, you know, climb on board a jetliner and dump um, vast amounts of pollution into the air so I can go see some pristine natural environment, <laughs> thus destroying it in the process. <laughs> I, I don't, I have, I've heard varying claims about just the precise accuracy of this, but I have read in several places that when you take, if you take a plane load of tourists from Los Angeles to Cairo, Egypt to see the Great Pyramid and fly them back, that flight both ways takes as much energy as it took to build the Great Pyramid. Okay? Yeah. That's an absurd amount of energy. Um, another great another great one high on my list of, oh, please, is the bread machine. <laughs> now, making, making bread, okay, it's a simple, pleasant, easy process. It's fun. It doesn't take much time. I mean, you knead the bread a little bit, then you cover it, okay? And then you punch it down and you let it rise again. It, why do you need a mach- why do you need to drop um hundred dollars on this clanking monstrosity? It's gonna to need to be cleaned, by the way. And uses electricity and, and uses scarce resources in the manufacture and the raw materials so that you don't have to get dough on your hands or what? Yeah, it's like do you hate the the feel of lovely, soft, like, you know, almost like a baby's belly? Do you just really despise the smell of like yeastiness? A fresh, a fresh rising dough? Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, just who came up with this stupidity? Um, you know, it's just there's there's all kinds of examples like that. Um, I, I don't I haven't yet seen anything quite to the level of stunning blindness as the immense SUV that rolled by me one day in Ashland, Oregon. It did this, you know, one of these things the size of a tank. And it rolled by and on the back bumper of this immense vehicle with onboard television on the rear for the rear seats and you know, power everything and 
What's a bumper sticker saying, live simply that others may simply live? (laughs) Yeah, I can see why you had to get out of Dodge there, yeah. (laughs) Right, Right there, you see why our civilization is hurtling down the slope of the long descent. Because Mm -hmm. that level of blindness to the consequences of our own actions is what leads to that. That's what caused Rome to fall. Mm-hmm. And the lack of irony in doing that is just like a- yeah, the, the, yeah. The fact that somebody would do that and not catch the irony, wouldn't even blush, would think what a, what a worthy sentiment it is. Yeah, it's, it's, I, 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 this this that happened in Ashland, Oregon. And Ashland is an interesting place, but I have to say, I saw a lot of things like that. There, it was very fashionable to have solar panels on your roof in Ashland. And I recall walking by one house that um, had a fine rack of solar panels facing the street, and nicely displayed so you could see them. The house faced north, so those <laughs> solar panels did not absorb one watt worth of sunlight. They were just there as a fashion statement. Oh God, and, that hurts. And that kind of, it hurts. It does. But this is the kind. This is the kind of thing that we see in the kind of um, faux environmentalism of the well-to-do. Mm-hmm. It's all, it's all, you know, it's all virtue signaling. Yeah. And so we have, you know, if, if we wonder why so many other people don't take it seriously, that's why they don't take it seriously because they look at things like saying, okay, the activists don't take it seriously. If they really thought we were in that kind of trouble, they wouldn't do that. Right. So let's talk about the chapter where you, you give the, uh, you, you, you give a synopsis of sort of 10 first steps towards sustainability. And it's an excellent list, but there's there's two points that you suggest that I, I would like to share with our listeners and have you talk about them uh, a bit. Can you first tell our listeners why adopting an obsolete technology is important? Okay, this is really simple. Um, the more modern a technology is, by and large, the more energy it uses, the more resource it uses, the more wasteful it is, the more waste it produces, okay? So um, for, compare, for example, a modern electric egg beater oid thing to an old-fashioned crank hand beater, mm-hmm. okay? The hand beater is a much simpler technology. It's easier to repair. It's easier to maintain. It doesn't use electricity. It doesn't have, you know, involve complex plastics or anything like that. It's a lump of metal. Mm-hmm. And so if you adopt that technology, you've just downscaled part of your life in a way that's going to make sense in the deindustrial age. So is it more about the the habit of it than the actual saving of oil and that sort of thing? Or because... It's both. Okay. It's it's both. And the thing is, um back one of the thing one of the things that um that I used to encourage people to do, in fact it was one of our one of our requirements in our study program when I was the head of the Ancient Order of Druids in America. We asked people to make three changes in their lives to cut down on their ecological footprint, the burden they placed on, on the biosphere. We didn't tell them which three changes. They came up with the changes. They, they chose them and stuck with them for a year. Mm-hmm. And we found that very often, once somebody had done that, they would do more because they've mm. been broken out of the mindset that says you can't, you can't actually change anything. You have to do what, you know, what the television tells you. Mm-hmm. And so, and so the, once you get in the habit then you can then it starts having serious impact on your resource use. Mm-hmm. You start t- putting less of a burden on the planet. You know, you the, you you've taken to using the egg beater. The egg beater's fine. You you have no trouble with the egg beater. It's a perfectly fine. You know, I'm going to throw out the bread machine. 
I could <laughs> donate to a charity shop and just start kneading the bread myself. Okay, mm-hmm. we just chucked. You just chucked another energy wasting habit. Okay, well, you know, this is fun. I, the, the bread's better, and and I like the experience. And what else can I change? Because once people get into the habit of recognizing they have the freedom not to <clears throat> progress, you don't have <laughs> yeah. to do. You don't have to do the latest thing just because the television says you have to. You Mm -hmm. can go back to something your grandma did, which probably works better and tastes better. Well, and it's a bit subversive, I guess, to to just say, just because I want to, you know, and and like you said, the the television isn't going to tell me what to do. And it is a bit, you do kind of break, it is like asking a friend, can I borrow your car? It breaks the social contract and it brings you sometimes into more intimacy. So it could be intimacy with the bread or with your neighbor or, or just even with yourself, that sense of like, wow, look how conditioned I am towards doing it way but maybe I'll maybe I'll try something a bit different this time so what about exploring spirituality you mentioned that as the last one and I think for a lot of people who are reading a peak oil book they're like whoa, whoa, whoa what wait what <laughs> I'm supposed to explore my spirituality no, it's, it's, why it's, it's very simple it's really simple. Um, the entire structure of the consumer economy is aimed at making us look for satisfaction outside ourselves we're supposed to we're supposed to become happy by buying this product this fizzy brown sugar water you know look at these sexy attractive people having a great time because they're guzzling fizzy brown sugar water you can be like them no you won't you'll just be yourself guzzling fizzy brown sugar water and rotting your teeth out okay um breaking that notion that happiness in happiness is about products Mm. Happiness is about having things, which is essential to our consumer economy. It's what keeps it running. So break that and say, no, happiness is an internal state. It has very little to do with which products I buy and very much to do with how I relate to myself, how I relate to the cosmos, how I relate to the powers, however I understand them, that govern the cosmos. That's what spirituality is about. Mm-hmm. You know, when you take up a spiritual practice, whatever it is, you're you're turning away from goods. You're turning away from stuff, turning toward that inner realm, which is where happiness actually comes from. This is something that everybody knows. Well, or used to know, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that's that's why it's a very important thing because it's when it's when you can step back from the rat race that you stop being a rat. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the hope. But do you notice, though, like you talked about the experience in the small town in Southern Oregon? Uh, I don't want to keep, you know, slagging that town, but it, it's like archetypal, right? But, but the, you know, I, so I had my friend Sarah on, Sarah Selecki, who wrote a book called Radiant Shimmering Light. And it's about how capitalism is co-opting spirituality. And so, like, for instance, I have an Instagram account and I post my, you know, wild crafting and my altars and you know ritual because I do want people to see the social proof of like no this is me actually living in connection with the wheel of the year and that sort of thing but at the same time I gotta make a living so at the same time it's still marketing and there's this like weird feeling of you know being part of the circumdrome of the internet where it's like yeah Spirituality is really important to me, being in right relationship with the land that I'm on, reducing my, my oil dependency, all of these things are important to me. And yet it's all getting packaged still in capitalism. Like, how do you, I, this is a bit tangential, but I'm curious what we, you think. We live, no, the thing is, it's not t- tangential. And this is one of the things I was trying to talk about in, 
in the book where I'm talking about, the, you know, that we're all living in, this, in a transitional state. We can't make the leap in a single moment into this other state that we might want to live in, okay? Mm -hmm. That we don't, we can't immanentize the eschaton. Mm. We all live with a we all live with a foot in both worlds, mm -hmm. okay, and so and we have to keep that balance between them, and it's not easy. There is mm -hmm. no simple, straightforward solution. There is no package that'll fix it. Um, you know, we live in a society that has all of these features, and you know, we and until that, you know, as long as anybody who's listening to this will be alive, that's still going to be the case. The society will change, but it's probably going to keep its basic orientation fairly much the same. Right. But at so, the same time, we have to be able to kind of step back from that a little and do something else and build a part of our lives that isn't really part of that. We may use it. You know, there may be that back and forth. I mean, you know, yeah, I, I market. I have to market myself, too. I, I, you know, I make my living by selling my books. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people who people who want to, um, you know, people who want to practice Druidry, say, are going to some of those are going to buy my books on Druidry. And I'm going to encourage them to buy those books on Druidry mm -hmm. because that's what pays that's what pays the bills. But at the same time, there's a lot of stuff that I do in my own life having to do with my own spirituality that is not packaged. That's just mm -hmm. that's part of my own life. Mm -hmm. And so just keeping that boundary state. Mm. Where you, rem you you know what what's on one side and what's on the other, and do what you have to do to get by in the material world, in the world of the present, while in your inner life beginning to lay the foundations for a world of the future. Mm -hmm. Well, and I also hear you saying that, you know, so we don't want to immunitize the eschaton, so don't catastrophize where we are right now, but also, uh, you know let go of the expectation of some imminent arrival point of perfection mm -hmm, where we've packaged mm -hmm, our mm -hmm. lives in perfect alignment with our values. That, that's not it either. Yeah. And I think yeah. that not only are you selling your Druidry books, but also I, I, I believe that you genuinely believe, and I genuinely believe that probably the world would be uh, better cushioned to face deindustrialization if people weren't mm -hmm. buying Druidry books right now. So mm -hmm. I legitimately, mm -hmm. this is a good response. So, you know, that's, that's, that's why I'm writing books on Druidry. That's why, <laughs> I mean, the, I, I want people to buy my book, The Long Descent. And part of that is because it pays my bills. But part of it is because if you've read, if you've read that book and paid attention to it, you're going to be braced and, and better positioned to deal with the changes that we're in the middle of right now. Oh, it's changed my life. It's changed my partner's life for sure. Like we, we very much have been um, practicing and it has taken about a decade that, you know, the, the books mm -hmm. for it 10 does. years, we keep going back to it. We're still working on some parts of it, but, um, but yes, I, I, I would agree. Yeah. So technological triage is something I wanted to, to ask you about too, because it kind of shows up as you're getting into the last third of the book as well. Maybe just, could you remind listeners what triage is like technically and also what should we keep in mind then as we are transitioning to deindustrialization like in terms specifically of like the technologies of today that we invest in um in which we wean ourselves from what what should we be keeping in mind and thinking about in the next decade or so so it's been 10 years since this book came out and like the iphone I didn't own an iPhone when I bought this book and now I do a lot of my, now there's Instagram. I do a lot of my work on it. It's a big part of my career. In fact, so it's like, Oh, as I'm thinking about the next 10 years and technological triage, how do we mm -hmm. decide what stays, what goes, what should we wean ourselves from? Okay. 
Okay, so first of all, triage, the, the, the term triage is, um, was originally something that was used uh, in, in the military medical corps, in, in battlefield situations. You, you've got a stream of, of, of guys coming in with wounds, and some of them are going to make it whether they get immediate treatment or not, and some of them are not going to make it no matter what you do. But there's some who will die if they're neglected, and if you act, you can save their lives. And so triage is a process of sorting out what doesn't need to be saved, what can be saved, what's a goner. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a harsh metaphor, but that's what we need to start doing on technology. What is going to be around no matter what you do? What is a lost cause no matter what you do? And what is there that you might be able to save? And there is no universal here. It is very much a matter of the process that each person goes through. Of the technologies you have, um, which ones are going to sunset out? No question. Which ones are going to be around no matter what? Which ones can you personally, do you personally want to invest the time and effort into saving? Well, you know, is there an old technology you want to revive and start and, you know, help people get, the, get to work on it? Is there, um, so, you know, and, and that's, how, that's how technological triage works. Um, as far as the next 10 years, I, you know, the, the shortage of crystal balls being what it is, <laughs> I don't have a clear idea of what's going on. I do know that a lot of the very loudly ballyhooed technological, um, quote, advances, unquote, of the last decade have turned out to be rather more limited than, than expected. Um, there are, you know, you mentioned the iPhones, and there are, of course, a fair number of people who are using iPhones, but a significant number of people have gotten rid of theirs. Mm -hmm. and are going back to dumb phones mm -hmm. or even as as I do to yeah, I've never had a cell phone and I do you, you know we're talking on a landline and that's the kind of phone that I use um and there are a growing numbers of people who are doing that because they're they've picked up on the downsides which are considerable of mm -hmm. cell phones and they're saying you know no, here's the triage that I'm doing I'm getting rid of that um in the same way uh, you remember when ebooks were going to sweep everything before them, and uh, mm -hmm. you know pretty soon <laughs> that that hasn't happened. They peaked at about twenty percent of the book market, and have been falling steadily ever since. Mm -hmm. um, I have heard of many, many people who got rid of their libraries of, of printed books when they got their ebook reader, and then after about six months, slapped themselves in the forehead, saying, "What mm -hmm. was I thinking?" and went and started picking up buying books again because, you know, ebooks have their limitations. Mm -hmm. And so um, exactly what's going to happen over the next decade is a really, is a really hard question to ask. Will there be new technologies introduced? Quite possibly. Um, my guess is that more of the new technologies will flop. Hmm. Like, and it's a quicker turnover than ever before. Very possible, yeah. Because the thing is, technology is uh, – this, this is – I'm about to speak a heresy – extreme heresy, blasphemy <laughs> against the great God progress. Technological progress is subject to the law of diminishing returns. Mm -hmm. Okay. So as you pile on one invention after another, the amount of benefit you get from each new invention does not go up. Quite the contrary, it goes down. Um, a lot of the inventions, the hot new tech trends that are coming out nowadays uh, aren't worth having. Do you remember when Google launched the Google Glass yeah. Where people were going on with these eyeglasses that were, you know, everything they looked at was being immediately live streamed to the web and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, it bombed. Mm -hmm. It bombed in a very big way. Um, and so Google was left going, huh? 
Well, it's interesting too, because you say ebooks have their limitations and not the least of which is aesthetic and Google goggles are the same, right? It's like, you look like an idiot wearing these things and like constantly, and people, you know, looking at their phones, they look silly, you know? So at some oh, yeah, point, yeah. It's like there's a, hopefully a, um, a, some sort of aesthetic revival about to occur. In, in your yeah. one of your essays, um, it, it, it's not in The Long Descent, but I think this essay kind of sidles right up alongside it. It certainly stands as a very influential um, uh, in, in this household that I'm in, that's for sure. It, this essay was called Peak Oil Advice from German Poets, and, and it can be mm -hmm. found on the, the mirrored um, blog. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But in that, you listed three things people can do today to change their lives, to respond to peak oil and climate change mm -hmm. and collapse and all that. Can you share those three things and sure. why each of them is important? Cause this was very, this, like I said, this was life-changing in terms of where we spend our time here in this Vanderson household. <laughs> yeah. This is basically, this is where you start. Learn one thing, give up one thing, save one thing. Okay, learn one thing. Most of us are incredibly specialized. We know we have very, very few general skills. We've gotten, say, job training in one narrow specialty, and that's all. And so we're very poorly positioned to deal with a rapidly changing economy, economic contractions, all kinds of things going on um, like that. This is, you know, a lot of these very complex very specialized job categories may not be around for much longer. So start learning things. Start learning practical skills. Choo and it doesn't matter which one. Choose one. I, I said, you know, growing vegetables, making soap, raising chickens, brewing beer, whatever. Mm -hmm. Learn how to do it. Pick it up. Come up with something. Run with it. Okay, that's learn. The second one, this is the one where people tend to wet themselves. <laughs> Give up one thing. Okay. We this is this is blasphemy. You're not supposed to, you're not supposed to give up anything. You're supposed to you know quote just do it blah blah blah. <laughs> That's the mindset that drives the consumer economy and is running the biosphere into the ground. Choose something that uses energy, that wastes resources, that's part of your life, and get rid of it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, the this is this is actually the one that I figured out first, and I figured it out in, a, in an odd way, which is that I, I I happen to I happen to dislike television. It's not that I dislike the programs; I dislike watching little jerky um, images dancing on a glass screen. It bores me. So I found that giving up television, getting rid of it. We I mean, my wife and I have not had one uh, basically in our married lives, and you have a very old computer too, don't you? Like you're you're not like. Um, even though you're a writer, you're not like, but I have to have the newest all, Mac. All I need, all I need is something that will do Windows 97. Right. So that's the, that's still stand. That's still what the publishers expect. Um, now, what I do, what I do from computers, I get used computers. I get computers that are going to be thrown out, hmm. and instead, I get them and I use them until they die, and then I get another one. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, what that means is that I'm taking a computer out of the waste stream. Mm -hmm. I'm decreasing the amount of e-waste that's being produced. I'm decreasing. I'm nobody's building a computer for me, so I'm not adding to the adding to the resource costs of computer production. And I generally get laptops with that have um you know that use just a trickle of energy and are are kind of slow. I don't care. Again, it's a glorified typewriter for me. 
Mm-hmm. And so can you think, we got rid of the car, right? And, and so uh-huh. our alternative is- That's a great uh, one, yeah. You know, cycling, walking, uh, co-op mm-hmm. membership. What are some of the biggies that you would say like, so there's television, we still have Netflix. I'm sorry, I can't help it, but the, <laughs> it's like maybe- <laughs> you, can, you can help it, but I you can't. don't choose to help it. I'm that's choosing fine. not that's to, fine. that's fine. No, no, imp- you know, accept it as your choice and decide, okay, that's that's what you're going to do. Yeah. Um, here's, here's the thing, um, air travel. Yes, yes. Stop flying. Yes. Stop flying. I'm so with you. Um, this is like Ruben would only come to Europe with me when we decided that the reasonable amount of time for us to to justify air travel to a different continent was two months. And it was like, mm-hmm. we're going to have to figure out how to live basically for free for two months. Because he was like, I'm not getting on a plane for for a, a joy ride, you know, mm-hmm. like. And so it's a little bit tricky when we're like, oh, okay, this is for work. How should we, you know, like, what should we justify? But yeah, when friends mm-hmm. are like, oh, we're all going to go meet up in Hawaii. I'm like, I'm sorry, we can't be friends anymore. I'm joking. But it's just like, you know, I, you know, yeah, air tra- travel. I think we need to take that much more soberly. Like, it should be a tougher decision, I think, than it is for so many exactly. Yeah, just be, a, be aware that, you know, when you climb aboard that plane, you're helping to, you're helping to melt the ice caps. Yeah. You're helping to make you're you, you've just hell you've just helped cause another heat wave. Enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> and so because, have, because have you been on a plane like when you if you've had to justify it recently, is it what? It's for work, it's for it's been a education. It's been a it's been a long time. Mm-hmm. Um the no, uh I I had to do a couple of plane a couple of plane trips when I was Grand Arch Druid of AODA. Mm-hmm. It was it, it was necessary for me to get out um, into various parts of the country to to do various things as part of my official duties, and at that time, um, I lived in Ashland, which has very which basically well it doesn't have train service. Right. Yeah, because we had and to take so, the train to Portland to get to Ashland, then like have a friend drive us. So so for, exactly, it yeah. like for you, it's the same kind of thing. Like if you're going to get on a plane, it's because there's some call of duty. There, there's, yeah, exactly. There's there's a real reason. Um, it when uh, let's see, in 2014, um, I needed to go to England to be to be part of a, of a major a major event um, in the Druid community. Now I love England. It's a it's a great place. I would love to go there. I'm not going to go there on a plane unless there's a really good reason to do so. And in this case, there were very good reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was, a, there was a, I had, I had certain duties. I have, since I stepped down, um, as Grand Arch Druid, I've been, you know, um, on my feet and on trains and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, doubtless I will again, you know, there will again be some kind of situation where I need to travel, um, mm-hmm. to another country. I hope at some point, um, frankly, what I wish I could do, I wish I could, could at this point, uh, could spare the time, um, to go by sea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's got to be. That's just so much, that, that just seems so much more pleasant, but we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, yeah, it, it needs not to be a casual decision. It needs not to be just what you do. Let's go meet up in Hawaii. Sorry, I'm not going to be there. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, let's, no, you know, let's, 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 um, you know, take the bus down to Newport instead. There are yeah. beaches there. So is there anything you'd add to the list of three things? The, the, uh, learn one no. thing, get rid of one thing. Uh, oh, sorry, I didn't let you finish. There's another thing. No, the third one. Yeah, save one thing. Save look at one. something that yeah. will look at something that's likely to be lost in the long descent, and do what you can to save it. Um, Such as, well, for example, um, it so happens that you can do an enormous amount of very complex mathematics with a slight rule. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Slide rule. I don't even kind of remember what that is. I, I can't picture yeah, one in my head. <laughs> exactly. Uh, look it up online sometimes. They're, they're, quite, mm-hmm. they're quite interesting little things. They require some skill to use, but this is rocket science, okay? So it's a little, the, it's not the, an abacus, but it's like a travel kind of version of that. No, no, it looks like a ruler with a middle section that slides back and forth, a little glass thing that slides back and forth over it. Oh, yeah, we had one in our house when I was a little kid. We used to kind of play yeah, around exactly. with that today. I never everybody, used it. Everybody did. Everybody, mm-hmm. it, was, it was a very, very common thing to have people took classes on in high school. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's a slide rule. And again, this is rocket science. Most of the numbers that were, the number crunching the human boot prints on the moon were done with slide rules. If you have some basic facility with a slide rule, you can do amazingly complex mathematics with it, all kinds of engineering, things like that. I actually put a fair amount of energy at one point in the Archdrew report to my, my old blog to encouraging people to take up the slide rule again. Hmm. In the hopes that three, five, six hundred years from now, just enough would be remembered of it that that could be reinvented, or somebody would find one and say, "Oh, look at this!" And here's this old crumbling book on how to use it. Right. Wow. Okay. And the civilizations that will rise on our ruins all of a sudden have a tool they can use to, um, you know, to do to do serious engineering, to do serious scientific calculations, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, slide rules. Slide rules can be made using very simple technologies. They do not require fossil fuels, and so that was one example. Um, another example is amateur radio. Hmm. And you know, not the, podcasts, right? Not no, not not, pod, not <laughs> podcasts. We're we're talking we're talking ham radio. You, the mm-hmm. the kind of things. We, typically, when there's a really some kind of really ghastly natural disaster, okay, you know, some a big chunk of Florida is, is hammered to the ground by a hurricane. The first messages that come out are from these old harriered retired engineers mm-hmm. who throw something. Who who if they you know they they either just bring out their their boxes and rig up an antenna, or if if everything's destroyed, they piece together a radio out of spare parts on the spot, get some electricity, in, and sending messages in Morse code. Um. That's a technology that, again, could, although it, although it was not developed until the end of the 19th century, really in the early 20th century before it really got, got any, any kind of distance, it would have been possible to make a basic radio transmitter and receiver um, with the sort of technology that was available to a, a good medieval alchemist. Hmm. Okay? So if that technology survives... If the idea of radio communications and the some simple way of making it work, if that survives, then people a thousand years from now are going to have ways to communicate across very long distances. Well, and we talked about the printing press, for instance. I'm thinking, like, gosh, what would I do without email? If I like, how would I run a business without email? I couldn't, but I could. I got into letterpress for a while. It's like, oh, if I could silk screening and have some materials for to make dyes or paint whatever inks I then I could make posters and pamphlets that kind of thing what do you think of um cultural conservation through you know oral traditions of stories and songs or language revitalization that kind of stuff do you see that as important all of these are important all of those are normal parts of the way that human beings respond to decline and fall Mm. And so, you know, that's, that's what we're dealing with. So this is, you know, all of our ancestors have been through the same thing. Oral tradition, oral traditions are great. Uh, they're very, they, you know, they, they are, it's, it's, 
really storytelling is the oldest human technology. Mm-hmm. It's our inf- it's our original information technology, and um, when we take the time to learn it, we're good at it. Mm-hmm. So um, that's a very important thing. Also, there's all kinds of stuff that we can be that we can do. And again, when I say um, learn one thing, give up one thing, save one thing, um, I'm not telling anyone which one to do. You got to follow mm-hmm. your heart in that. You got to say, okay, mm-hmm. what is the thing that I want? What, what is the thing that I feel drawn to learn? What is the thing that I decide I'm ready to give up? What mm-hmm. is the thing that matters enough to me that I'm going to work to save it? And then, we, okay, so we've been working that system. We keep doing that, you know, on mm-hmm. an ongoing basis in our household. Would you mm-hmm. add anything to that list? Or what would you recommend as like, then the next three habits you can, what are the next three things after learn one thing, get rid of one thing, save one thing? Learn something else, give something mm-hmm. else up. Just keep doing it. Just Just keep doing it. (laughs) Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah, exactly. That sounds good. We'll keep doing that. So um, I've asked you a few times now about grief and rage, but my my last question today is is a little different. I think considering this topic, what I'd really like to know is how do you personally seek joy and fun these days? Like what brings you laughter even in the midst of such dire times and topics? The, the thing is, it's I don't really have to go chasing fun, fun and laughter. The word I enjoy being alive. Mm. It beats the stuffing out of the alternative. <laughs> um, it, if I want laughter, well, these days I can watch U.S. politics mm-hmm. <laughs> because a clown show such as the one, and and I mean by that bipartisan, of course. You know, <laughs> the, the, we have we have a three ring clown show of which the the P.T. Barnum could only have dreamed <laughs> going on 24 seven in the United States right now. <laughs> and so that's that. Frankly, that causes me a great deal of laughter. Um, and I'm not sure why everyone else takes it so seriously. If I may just you know interject, Donald Trump is just a politician. That's all he is. Hillary Clinton was just a politician. All of these other buffoons are just politicians. They're not vast archetypal shadows blotting out the starlight forever or what have you. They're just a bunch of politicians. And both they and their opponents are frankly remarkably silly. But don't you find sometimes that the impact of having such buffoonery causes you to feel... um, disappointment in humans I set the bar low for human human endeavor we are a bunch of social primates we are not that smart <laughs> we are not these vast godlike beings that we sometimes in bat in when we're like drunk or stoned or uh, have been smoking our own egos a little too much um, like to convince ourselves we're just a bunch of social primates and yeah we do a lot of very silly things. Um, the buffoons we have now are doing no more damage than the very, very serious figures we had not that long ago. And it's just, you know, when you, when you realize that what the process we're going through, the process of the long descent is normal. This is the way, this is part of the normal life cycle of a civilization. It's not you know, this this horrible intrusion out of nowhere, how can this be happening? You know, the great god progress, uh, you know, has promised us a Star Trek future metastasizing across the galaxy. No. 
there was no promise made. This is the way civilizations mature and age and die. We're going through a perfectly normal process. That's one thing that takes care of a lot of the upset, just realizing this is normal. Mm. It just, if you can imagine, imagine that we lived in a society where everyone was taught that you don't get old and die, okay? You just stay youthful and healthy and vigorous and sexy and active forever. Okay. That's so like this society. <laughs> there's oh yeah, there's and that, there's quite a bit of that, of course. Mm-hmm. And every person was noticing, you know, as they passed a certain age, they start noticing wrinkles and gray hair, and everything they've been taught is that this doesn't happen, this can't happen. It's a sign of a dreadful disease, and you must spend lots of money on your doctor right away. Okay, and they'll cure it, and it never nothing cures it. People would work themselves up into a profound state of misery and worry and fear and despair and every other kind of nasty emotion. And if they found out, oh, no, this is normal. You've been being lied to the whole time. This is normal. This is, this is, how the, this is the normal arc of the human life cycle. You, you know, there, are, there are benefits as well as losses at each state in the cycle, and you know, this is how it goes. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. There's an immense sigh of once you actually accept that there's an incredible sigh of relief. The same is true about a civilization. Um, our civilization passed its peak some time ago, is now in a perfectly normal decline, and will wind down and you know bottom out in a dark age one to three hundred years from now. And that's that's the way things are. The, you know we d- that has, that doesn't mean we've failed. That doesn't mean it's their fault over there. It is all all of this histrionics. All the moaning and shrieking and whining and rage and dread and despair is wasted effort because this is normal. It's healthy. It just doesn't feel good, but it's it's sort of like it's change, but in the inevitable direction. So you have like a deep, deep abiding acceptance at all times, which makes it probably easier to feel, as you say, the joy at the, the positives at each at each level. Like, look at all this beautiful culture you've conserved. Look at all the connection you have with your food and your sense of place and a sense of purpose and contribution in your work because you're exactly. able to see what other people exactly. There's all of these there's all of these marvelous things. And you're you're only going to be alive for X number of years anyway. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you know, you're going to you know, and the thing is that's also very liberating to know that to actually grapple with the fact that you're only going to live for a certain period of time and then it's someone else's problem. Right. Right. So you might as well leave the place as, as tidy as you can. Yeah, yeah leave, leave the place <laughs> tidy, do some good while you're here, have some fun while you're here and relax because you were just a social primate. Okay. Mm-hmm. You are not you are not God, you are not you you are not um, a hero in spandex, but you know, you are not it is not your job to save the world, it's your job to move with the times. And to deal with the, to de- deal with what you know what this phase of history has to offer, both of good and of ill, and try to make things a little better for people while you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for all your contribution to making things a little better. As I said, uh, the Long Descents has been uh, just a, a seminal work for me, and I, I can say that for my I'm partner Ruben as well. And and uh, and I highly recommend people purchase this, purchase it new. You'll reread it several times. Um, <laughs> but thank you so much, John, for being on the show again and, and giving us a highlight reel of the book. Thanks so much. You're, you're welcome and thank you. I've appreciated being on. 
Well, congratulations to John Michael Greer on the 10th anniversary of The Long Descent, a fantastic book that has uh, certainly shaped the last 10 years of my life, the last nine, nine years or so. Um, much gratitude, much respect to that uh, just uh, giant of, <laughs> of uh, an, an elder of the uh, peak oil thinking and, and how the, I'm just so grateful for the education I've received. I hope everyone enjoyed that conversation and uh, I need to process and debrief with the man who first handed me the book, my good husband, Ruben Anderson, folks. Welcome back to the show, Ruben. Hello. It's good to be back. And uh, I just also want to acknowledge yet again that you introduced me to the work of the former <laughs> Archdruid, and <laughs> I swooped in and uh, and sort of wooed him and struck up relationship. And um, uh, I'm the one who gets to have these great conversations, <laughs> and you get the table scraps. But uh, I'm, I'm curious... Uh, what it was like for you uh, listening to that conversation since you have also been so um, influenced by John Michael Greer. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes it's nice to just uh, check back in with our teachers uh, mm -hmm. a, a bit of time later. Yeah. Um, uh, what did you think? He, he basically stands beside, behind everything he wrote. Wouldn't change a word, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, is, um, it is incredible to think. It's been 10 years and yet also incredible to think it's been only 10 years. Uh, I think for me it's been a little longer because he always writes his books on his blog. Mm -hmm. So you might have two or three years of him thinking these things before the book actually comes out. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe that's why it, I, I feel incredulous at the idea that I first <laughs> ran into this in 2008. Um, but it is certainly still just what... Uh, framework like so much of his work since then has been more kind of going back in and detailing aspects of it you know writing more books about more kind of about sections of it but that book really it lays it out it makes it plain mm -hmm. it's pretty comprehensive if yeah. your person is like oh i've been thinking about sustainability for a long time and what we need is more education and if we could just galvanize the political well yeah <laughs> fucking shelve that shit yeah. read this book and you'll be like oh yeah. Now that we look at this historical framework and we look around at the evidence, mm -hmm. um, it's uh, pretty hard to deny mm -hmm. that uh, we are somewhere in that 150-year to 300-year decline. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, what did you think about his numbers? You know, you and I have talked a bit about like um, how when you read the book, you're not thinking about uh, people dying in fires in Greece. Mm -hmm. You're not thinking about the collapse, sudden overnight collapse of 90% of the, uh, a penguin colony on some island. You're like, you know, you're thinking about this kind of decline. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the long descent, but mm -hmm. these punctuated massive losses. Mm -hmm. uh, and then what he's, he once again makes it, he's so, he has this equanimity about him, right? <laughs> he's just been thinking about this so long, mm -hmm. his thought is so refined that he's like, no, no, this is what I was talking about. We're going to go, you know, stair step down to about 5% mm -hmm. of uh, our current world's population sometime in the next uh, few centuries. Mm -hmm. Sounds drastic since we're at billions. And I am yeah. a person who actually feels like that's what should happen. But it's mm -hmm. like, you know, when you put it that way, that sounds pretty yeah. harsh. Yeah. Yeah. 5% is uh, a lot 
95% of humans not being here. 95% of this many humans. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I, I phrase it that way because he points out that just sort of, um, uh, well, we read the book, I think it was Radical Simplicity, where the guy calculated that if every couple just had one child, uh, world population would be down to 1 billion people in 100 years. Yeah, I was feeling pretty hopeful about that 10 years ago. I was like, yeah. yep, I'm just going to have my one. And like <laughs> yeah. all people, it's all about education. If people just had this knowledge, we see there's problems there. Yeah, but it shows that how, as, as Greer said, that uh, this doesn't have to be a zombie apocalypse. Mm -hmm. You know, that just simple reductions in replacement rate mm -hmm. uh, can have pretty massive uh, population uh, impacts. Mm -hmm. There is, you know, a 95% population die-off is certainly seen in examples. It's, it's stunning to think of for humans, which, as he said, like, we are a weed species, right? We're like rats and cockroaches and deer, you know, just incredibly competent. Very successful. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, very flexible. Um, and again, I love how he put it, like, so much of of how I think was framed by him and in many ways this book you know he pointed out that humans with nothing more than a stone axe populated every continent on the planet mm -hmm. like incredible so when people set their hair on fire at the idea that maybe we can't have a smartphone you know it's just it's foolish right mm -hmm. it's ridiculous um, so the the population drop certainly is um, is challenging but it's still if, arresting. If I were to argue with it, I'd be arguing for, oh no, 95% drop is ridiculous. We're only going to have 90% drop, right? Like it's, <laughs> or 50. Yeah. Any of this means we really have to become more skillful with uh, death work and grief uh -huh. and uh, accepting loss. Mm -hmm. That's just what it is now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I, really, I really was still impressed by his framework and, and by how it stands up. Really very useful. Um, I was also reflecting um, because I ran into John Michael Greer in my last relationship, and this with your former with partner. my former partner, mm -hmm. <laughs> not just like a friendship, yeah, but long term, yeah, my my last long term relationship, mm -hmm. uh, my previous long term relationship, because which yeah. I've surpassed. That in in length in length yeah. of, of being with you now. That's right. Yeah, so you're I'm, my I'm longest in, term. You're like more invested here now. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but it's true that I caught you on a rebound. Yeah, I, I don't know about a rebound. Let's not pick nits on that right now. But <laughs> <laughs> um, but the Greer's writing and uh, its connections to the other reading I was doing, the work I was doing at that time in uh, the sustainability department at the city of Vancouver. Uh, it was a lot more challenging for my former partner to deal with that and to deal with me thinking with that, thinking about that. So it that. was more challenging on for your relationship, yeah. harder on your relationship. Yeah, yeah much, much, you know, Greer and his thinking in this world of thinking created a lot more tension within that relationship than it does within this relationship. Mm -hmm. <laughs> ah, that was a different time. It was a different time. Um, and and everyone's different people now but it is it's something that um you know sharon astic doesn't really write about this much anymore but she looked a lot at the difficulty the impact that someone kind of becoming collapse aware and starting to prepare a bit or change their lifestyle a bit uh how that can create huge tensions 
mm-hmm. within relationships. You know, one person just wants to sell their house and buy up a bigger house and get another car on lease and, you know, Go just on vacation keep, keep on the treadmill. And the other person is being like, no, let's scale down. Let's mm-hmm. reduce our debt. Let's plant a garden. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Let's think about burying some money or yeah. whatever. Yeah. yeah. Sharon Astick wrote about that and also a uh, former guest on the show and episodes about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Carolyn Baker, mm-hmm. who wrote the book, Love in the Age of Ecological Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things that probably made me very receptive was that I was going through a personal collapse Mm. at that time. Um, Mm -hmm. I had a business that got washed away in the 2008-2009 global recession. I had to Mm -hmm. go through a bankruptcy. It was, you know, an incredible shock Mm -hmm. and a huge blow to my identity. Mm -hmm. And it was a collapse of my world. It was, Mm -hmm. and it was a collapse of my faith in, uh, what was holding up this world, Mm -hmm. you know, like, uh, easy access to, uh, credit and loans and Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. And, um, just how quickly, uh, and my business at the time was, uh, you know, based on ecological values, you know, mm-hmm. sustainable merchandise, uh, responsible trade. And I was stunned at mm-hmm. how quickly uh, the wealthy, uh-huh. you know, catered. It was like quite high end and uh, high design. Mm-hmm. But I was very stunned at how quickly people who could afford to, let's say, shop their values mm-hmm. would cease to do so. <laughs> uh, and yeah. so my faith in conscious capitalism <laughs> evaporated right. with also my washed business. Away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah. so uh, so I was pretty receptive to uh, reading something like The Long Descent. I, mm-hmm. Let's just pause for Mona to settle because mm-hmm. she's clicking and she's uh, back at her dog toy. She mm-hmm. just really loves doing rubinations. So she <laughs> yeah. loves the sound of your mellifluous voice uh-huh. that makes her want to chew on her prong like nothing else. Um, so... Yes, it, there can be a lot of strain, but we, we sure found some harmony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it is, uh, I think it's important for people to hear if they're coming to grips with this and maybe aren't, you know, certainly not on pace with their family mm-hmm. or with their friends, you know, mm-hmm. that would be... Uh, a miracle of wonders if they were but if you had a whole community yeah. that just totally collapse aware oh my <laughs> yeah. god tell but us to, how you live let's to also be out of sync with uh, you know your loved one and your best friend and it's just it's uh, it's hard yeah it's very isolating yeah. and um, and that's tricky because uh, you know you're taking on what can uh, Myrna Lewis calls like taking on more than your fair share of the collective mm. angst, right? Mm-hmm. You're like very sensitive to it. And, and some people, they live their life as though they don't have to be. And that can be very lonely mm-hmm. and yeah. crazy making. Yeah. 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 And it, it's, it's also, <laughs> it can be a wonderful bonding experience uh, to, to agree on so much of the shape of this and to have a shared language, to be able to make jokes about zombies mm-hmm. uh, while knowing that none of us really believe in zombies, mm-hmm. you know, but that mm-hmm. we do believe in a, in a quickly constraining future, mm-hmm. to put mm-hmm. it And that we're, we are keen to uh, share best and most promising practices <laughs> for how are we bringing people yeah. along uh, who are not as psychologically and emotionally and spiritually prepared and like mm-hmm. kind of doing our work more, you know, you kind of move beyond the like personal development <laughs> <laughs> and the need to self-actualize mm-hmm. when you adopt this, when you accept, 
um, the reality of what's happening. You start to adopt a more preparatory worldview. Mm -hmm. Things like attachment and facilitation and, mm -hmm. um, you know, trauma response and, and community uh, organizing and things like that. They just take on a different texture mm -hmm. and tone. And it's so lovely to connect with other people who are like, yeah, I'm willing to carry this too. And I am carrying it. Mm -hmm. It's great to connect. So, yeah. yeah. So if people would like to come and uh, hang <laughs> out with us, potentially they could bring a partner. Mm -hmm. They could bring a friend. Mm -hmm. But uh, if uh, they don't have folks in their world like that, then they definitely should be coming mm -hmm. to hang out with us at Ritual and Practice for the Urban Homestead. We're jokingly calling it Apocalypse Camp. Haha, <laughs> we get the joke. Uh, and it's happening in September on Cortez Island uh, at Hollyhock. Mm -hmm. And if you want to find out more, you can go to hollyhock.ca or you can go to my website, carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-B-A-G. N-O-L-A. Oh, you're signaling. What, what's one other thing you want to say? N-O-L-A.com. Is yeah. that? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, there was a couple more things I wanted to say about Greer, actually, if, uh, if I can. Okay, let's think about how to. <laughs> <laughs> just, Leah, let's just keep going. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Um, there was something about the, so his collapse, the punctuated, the stair step collapse down. Um, catabolic the catabolic collapse, mm -hmm. um, which is such an evocative metaphor because metabolism is eating food mm -hmm. and catabolism is eating yourself. Yeah. Right. So it's like, this is the cannibalism of our society. Mm -hmm. It's our society cannibalizing itself. So yeah. See, Mona's like, oh, that sounds <laughs> yeah. terrible. Yeah. 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 So quite a metaphor. Mm -hmm. Um, but the long descent again, yeah, it sounds kind of smooth, maybe not such a big deal. Uh, but he also does speak a lot about how collapse is unevenly distributed. So oh, yeah. what our culture right now very effectively does is distributes collapse into poor communities, uh, communities of color, mm. other countries, <laughs> you know, so our, our culture is very strongly distributing collapse elsewhere mm -hmm. as hard as we can, um, not into the white middle class neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So I just want to be real clear about that that um it may look smooth here and it's not totally smooth elsewhere it's actively bad elsewhere absolutely and oh. and uh there was an article that floated around uh something around you know um climate change isn't really gonna uh, hit home as a concept until a whole bunch of white people die yeah. and then i read the article and i was like when are they going to keep hammering on about how many white people are going to have to die <laughs> yeah. it was it was actually a very yeah. um gentle article uh -huh. I, I i thought yeah. uh so uh yeah that's yeah. like whiteness really is a motherfucker and that's mm -hmm. it's definitely not going to go gently into um mm -hmm. some kind of uh, you know equally distributed collapse that's yeah. definitely not the case collapse is happening uh right now mm -hmm. very right acutely now. This, this is what collapse looks like mm -hmm. yeah uh, and then the last thing i want to say that's almost it's almost kind of a counterpoint to that is he has this beautiful um description again a thing i found so powerful that maybe it was on his blog and not in a book but he talks about how the collapse of the roman empire took say 400 years or 300 years uh, and so the life of the average roman citizen like there would have been several generations of people that that lived and died through that period. Uh, so through the life of the average Roman citizen in the middle of collapse of the Roman Empire would have seemed kind of day to day, not very different at all. Like you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror, it's still the same you, you know, and 
my uh, metaphor for it is it's like going gray that I my beard is my beard color you know my beard is my beard color my beard is my beard color holy crap I'm gray (laughs) you know and suddenly it's like there's this kind of shocking notice that's like this little stair step collapse of of my aging of looking at the picture <laughs> from three years ago yeah. and you're like what yeah but yeah. for most of for most of the time for the next 300 years it's going to be just kind of slowly going gray okay. with these periodic sharp sudden horrible things happening mm-hmm. that then we'll probably kind of figure out how to manage for mm-hmm. another generation or two of kind of mellow collapse before another real big stair step hits us mm-hmm. so Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's why, you know, his response, like, when I said, how do you find joy or whatever, he was like, mm-hmm. I, he basically was like, I laugh at the world, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. it was like, oh, right, because you've been thinking about this for a long time, mm-hmm. and so um, there's a, a deep and profound acceptance mm-hmm. that means there's enough spaciousness to, like, joke about it, right? Yeah. It's apocalypse camp. Yeah. That's what we're doing. And it's interesting, you know, I'm sure this is something we will talk about a lot at Apocalypse Camp, that there is kind of the, there's the abstract thought of human civilization, which I don't really, I'm not really that concerned about. Yeah, I have um, no somatic discharge when you yeah. talk about that, yeah. Yeah, but the the real human pain, the palpable pains of the of each step of collapse is the part that hurts me yeah. uh, as I forecast. Well, it. and it's so... Um pervasive and atmospheric right like Mm -hmm. we were talking about this the other night that it just sort of feels like the screws are tightening Mm -hmm. everywhere and so people are antsy at work there's more conflict over Mm -hmm. um you know there's more quote-unquote divisive Mm -hmm. uh, uh, conversations where there's more um racial friction in our uh social discourse or you know mm-hmm. we uh, a, a statue came down in our in our city and like you and i have been fighting racists on the internet for <laughs> so long of writing all these things yeah. it's like it's just you know between the economic precarity uh real estate housing insecurity mm-hmm. tent cities places um uh governments buffoons in a government all this stuff it's like yeah. everywhere you look there's just a slight tightening of the screw mm-hmm. and everybody's feeling just a little more pressure a little more um reactive a little more antsy mm-hmm. a little more anxious uh more mer for mm-hmm. no reason you know yeah. can't put a finger on it and it's funny because I said to some friends the other night, I was like, yeah, it's like, it's just kind of more collapsy. Mm-hmm. And I just had this like blank faces. Nobody <laughs> kind of got it. But I know that if I was in a different room with a few other people, they'd be mm. like, uh-huh, this yeah. is what JMG is writing about. It's yeah. like it's showing up in all these places. So if if that, if collapsy resonates <laughs> yeah. with you as a descriptor of the yeah. sort of increasing stress of the world, you should probably come to Apocalypse Camp with us yeah. so we can, yeah. Uh, hang out late night by the bonfire and look out at the ocean Mm -hmm. or you know what they have an ocean view uh, hot tub that Mm -hmm. is solar powered we might as well let fucking conscious (laughs) capitalism uh, sing us a lullaby as we look at the stars Uh, yeah yeah. (laughs) come hang out with us stars will be there long after we're gone yeah might as well enjoy them while we're here yeah 
Uh, that's all I had to say. Thank you, my love. Would that's you like all you to, to say that? <laughs> Would yeah, you like to give the website way, again? <laughs> there was like a, a, a sort of like pensive pause and you seemed settled and I was like, yeah, and let's wind this show up. <laughs> so yeah, sorry I cut you off. Uh, yeah. I uh, hope you'll come and join us at Apocalypse Camp. You know where to find all the information. <laughs> Until next time, take care. <laughs>